Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor here at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. There was what? No one at the mutant hamster races. We only had one entry into the Madame Curie lookalike contest, and he was disqualified later. Why do I even bother? Okay, I have no clue on that one. Uh, trust me, we're we're about to talk about someone who's a real genius, and so uh, it'll come through eventually where that quote comes from. I see. Uh, so, but to to start this this podcast off, we mm-hmm. actually have a little Facebook feedback. Yippee! And this comes from Brian, and Brian says, You guys should definitely devote an entire podcast to Alan Turing at some point. Well, Brian, that point is now. Woohoo! We're going to do a spotlight on Alan Turing. I first became acquainted with Mr. Turing's name while reading a novel, actually. Yeah? Uh, Neil Stevenson's Cryptonomicon. Oh, okay. Which uh, is, as you might guess from the title, very heavily oriented around... Uh, Cryptanalysis, yeah, and cryptography, and cryptology. Yes, uh, which I find fascinating. That's that basically they're all revolving around codes, right? And code breaking, exactly. And Turing uh, was known as a very important person in the history of code breaking. Although, uh, and it's interesting. To, I guess it depends on which circles you you talk to. You know mm-hmm. what Turing was known for. So he's really known as a code breaker, but he's also known as the uh, Sort of the father of computer science. Yes, that's true. That's true. It sort of depends on on whom you ask. Yeah. Uh, uh, very clearly, he had an extremely important um, role to play during World War II, but we'll we'll get into that. First, let's talk a little bit about Turing and where he came from and, and sort of his background. Uh, he's one of those individuals that the more you read about him, the more you realize how incredibly remarkable this guy was. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I, I liken him to Ada Lovelace, in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ada Lovelace was another person who had this amazing ability to understand mathematics on a level that is is completely foreign to me. Yes. I mean, I I understand basic math. I don't understand mathematics the way Hmm. Turing did. Yeah, yeah. Even at a young age. So Turing was born in 1912 in Paddington, London, uh, both of his parents were from the upper middle class, which yes. uh, at that time was you know class was very very important in in in, uh, in England. Mm-hmm. Um, still is to some extent, but not. It's I don't think they're quite as class conscious as they used to be. But uh, at any rate, he was born to upper middle class parents who got him into public school, mm-hmm. um, and he had a keen interest in math and science. Physics in particular. Yes, he did. Uh, in fact, he was um, incredibly gifted in in mathematics. He was reading, as a teenager, he was reading uh, uh, papers written by Einstein and theorizing on um, the nature of relativity and, and really understanding it in a way that I still struggle with today. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. clearly a, a guy who... Uh, whose genius far outstrips any intelligence I might possess. <laughs> I, I am more than happy to to admit that, because I certainly don't understand it on the level he did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, while in school, he 
happened to meet a, a student who was a year ahead of him mm-hmm. uh, named Christopher Morcom. Yes. Now, uh, wh- whom he referred to as Chris. And Chris uh, was another brilliant young student, someone who really w- had a very strong grasp on mathematics and, and physics as well. And Chris and Alan found that uh, talking together that they could kind of uh, understand mathematics on an even deeper level by sharing their combined perspectives. Mm-hmm. And they struck up a very strong friendship. And unfortunately, uh, Chris uh, died in 1930. He was, he, was not a, he was not a healthy young boy, as it turns out. So by 1930, Chris dies, and um, that left a, a, a huge gap in Turing's life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, you were about to say something. No, I was I was going to say uh, uh, Jonathan and I took our, our source information from a couple of really exhaustive sources. Yes. Um, I, I took a lot of mine from the uh, from Turing's actual website, yep. uh, which is maintained by one of his biographers. Andrew Hodges. Yes. Yes. Andrew Hodges wrote a book called Alan Turing, The Enigma. I highly recommend this book. I've actually, I read it ages and ages ago, mm-hmm. and I revisited it for this podcast. And it is an, a, a very good biography that, that really kind of dives into not just the the um, accomplishments that Turing achieved during his lifetime and not only uh, and the and the, the foundation he laid for computer science mm-hmm. but also his personal life and how that kind of shaped uh what he did and and who he was yep I, I haven't read it yet I want to pick it up but uh, the other source that I consulted for this and I know that Jonathan did too was the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy which is an awesome site too I've used it for other podcasts but uh, in doing the research and learning more about uh Chris Morcom, I, th- I think that one of the interesting things that this pulled out from from touring, based on the uh, uh, biographical, uh, the Hodges website, mm-hmm. uh, was that for some time, for two or three years afterward, he spent a lot of time thinking about human consciousness, yes, and what happens to that information, right? Uh, basically, how I, I, I assume. From that, that he was thinking about how the brain stores information and where that information goes when somebody dies. Right, yeah. He, uh, he became very focused on the subjects of mind and matter. Yes. Where, where does where does one begin and the other end? Are they one and the same? Is is the human mind just a, you know, is it just a, a material construct or is there some other element there that is indefinable really as far as you know, we can understand right now. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of led him into a study of quantum physics. Yep. And I think it has a lot to do with the, uh, uh, the genesis of the Turing test. Yes. Whether computers can, can think, but these are things we're, we'll talk about more in a minute, but, uh, I think it's interesting that an, an event like this may have, you know, prompted him to consider more serious matters and, and take him in different directions of study later in life. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I would definitely call that a pivotal moment in his life. Mm-hmm. I, one wonders what his life would have been like had had uh, Morcom not died. Yes. Um, so he graduates from public school and then goes to attend King's College at Cambridge University. Mm-hmm. Um, it's here where he really starts to study uh, various kinds of deep mathematics, including probability and um, uh, number theory, stuff that goes well beyond my basic understanding. It's also where he first begins to come to grips with 
his sexuality. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Alan Turing, if you did not know, uh, was a homosexual. And he kind of really started to discover this during college. And and college was a a pretty um, open environment compared to his public school. Like public school was a very controlled environment, uh, a very conservative environment. And the college as was almost the opposite. So Turing really experienced a complete change in culture by the time he went to, to college. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I, I'm sorry. No, I, go I, ahead. Please. I was going to say that he also, uh, during this period, started to uh, become involved with some very liberal thinkers. Yes. Of the time, um, economists like uh, like Keynes and mm-hmm. uh, Pigou. Um, you know, people have have suggested, I think, that he may have been moving in so far as to be Marxist, but I don't believe he actually ever was formally affiliated uh, with people like that. But he was he was exposing himself to some very uh, some very liberal people at that point in, in, a, in a variety of uh, and ways of speaking about it. Yeah, there were a lot of anti-war intellectuals yes. mm-hmm. that he was uh, he was friends with, or at least he moved in the same circles that they did. Mm-hmm. Um, he he never was... really seemed to express a particularly strong political opinion. No, um, no, not not from what I've read. Um, this was in the in the early 1930s. Yes. So we're talking the period between worlds, World Wars One and Two. Right. Um, and of course, economics playing a, a uh, Terrific part in, and terrific, I mean, very large part in uh, the outbreak of World War II. Um, so you know, these are these are things much on the minds of of people in the the very early twentieth century, certainly. Right. So in 1934, he graduates from King's College. Uh, in 1935, he's elected a fellow to the college, which means he actually draws a stipend. Uh, and in 1936, he's awarded a Smith's Prize for his work in probability theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so during this period, he was starting to specialize in quantum mechanics and logic as well as probability. And then we get to 1936, which is the year in which he theorized an, a, a device called the Turing machine. Yes. Uh, this was purely theoretical, mm-hmm. not an actual physical device. But he theorized that it would be possible to create a machine that could complete a computational operation the same way the human mind would. So it it simulates what the human mind goes through to perform a very specific operation. Now, mm-hmm. each each Turing machine could only perform one kind of operation. Yes. So uh, it wasn't like... It'd be like if you if you told one person they could only this is oversimplifying, but telling one person they could only add numbers, and another person they could only multiply numbers. Right. Uh, they they would not be able to swap roles at all. They could only do that one simple operation. You could give them different numbers, but they could only perform that one operation upon the numbers. Then uh, this led him to then theorize a universal Turing machine. Yes. Something that could handle more than one task. Right. It could it could perform all the operations that individual Turing machine machines could uh, perform. Yes. So the universal Turing machine was sort of really a, a theoretical computer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was a a computer that could perform any uh, operation or algorithm, set of directions, set of instructions that uh, the various other like individual theoretical Turing machines could could perform. So again, this is all. Uh, just the the realm of of ideas right now. Right, we still aren't at a physical machine yet. Yes, apparently um, Turing believed that the universal Turing machine. Um, he probably didn't call it that. 
I don't know. I didn't read that, but that's, of course, what we call it. Yeah. Um, uh, he believed that the universal machine would operate according to a table of behavior, yes. which people liken to a computer program. Yep. So basically, those were the, the parameters under which it could perform different kinds of operations. Yeah. Uh, but it's just funny that he had his own language. Uh, it's funny to me, but it makes all the you know all the sense in the world when you didn't already have a paradigm. You know, we call them computer programs because everyone else does. But right. he had his own language for this. But once you understand sort of what he's talking about, you kind of go, oh, so that's what you're thinking. Right. So a couple of years go by. In 1938, he gets a PhD in algebra and number theory. So no slouch there. Um, and <laughs> and uh, then he, he starts um, he starts working on an interesting project for the uh, the British government. Um, so we're talking about 1938. There's there's an event going on in Europe. 1938. Yeah, there's a small event going yeah. on in Europe. Uh, there's a um, Germany is uh, is becoming a bit of a problem. There's um, a World War Two is is breaking out at this point. Yeah. Is that and, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. No, as I, as I uh, previously alluded to, the uh, the German economy has been very poor for a very long time for them. And so gradually, as Adolf Hitler convinced that he could turn the country around, uh, were he given the opportunity to take the reins and take power, um, he he basically convinced the the Germans that you know he would be the leader that would lead them to greatness. And in doing so, they militarized, of course, and, uh, of course, Hitler had another agenda in mind as well. This was brought to you by Stuff You Missed in History Class. Yeah. But, uh, no, it's but it's interesting to think about that, that Turing was in, involved in, he was interested in things like, you know, economics and other yeah. things and mathematics. And uh, the Germans had developed a very uh, powerful mechanical uh, code machine. Yes, called the Enigma code yes. machine. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the German Enigma code machine was this uh, device that allowed the Germans to encode um, different commands. The uh, Luftwaffe, mm -hmm. in particular, was using it, as well as the German Navy. Yes. Uh, now, the Luftwaffe version was slightly simpler than the naval version. Yes. And, uh, and didn't have all that lint on it. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Wrong naval. Yeah. Uh, it was in the air as opposed to underwater. Yes. Anyway, um, Turing began to work on the uh, Enigma codes, and he developed a device of his own. Um, actually, he developed along with some other people. He mm -hmm. worked with several other people on this project. But um, together they developed a device called the BOMB, B-O-M-B-E. Mm -hmm. Yes. And this was a decoding device. And uh, the Luftwaffe codes ended up being the simplest to decode. It took more work to decode the naval ones, which were ma mainly uh, concerning the U-boats, mm -hmm. uh, submersible vehicles, um, which was very important as far as the war in the Atlantic was concerned. Uh, without those, uh, without being able to decode those messages, the war may have gone very differently. At least the naval part of the war would have gone very differently. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, he starts to break these codes. It's actually having a measurable effect on the war. It's saving countless lives on the Allied side. Mm -hmm. uh, he also, in 1942, interestingly enough, proposed marriage yes, he to did. Joan Clark. Mm -hmm. And then he retracted the proposal. She accepted. Then he had to retract it and he explained to her, I think this was one of those moments where it was probably another defining moment, mm -hmm. where he he told her that he was uh, a homosexual and that he wouldn't, that his, therefore he couldn't really... Uh, 
uh, marry her. Mm-hmm. And I think that was probably the moment where I mean, this is this is guesswork, but it seems like it's the moment where he decided that he wasn't going to pretend to be something he wasn't, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which unfortunately would lead to tragedy further down the the, the line. Um, so in in 1944, uh, mm-hmm. this is getting close to the end of World War II. He actually first started talking about building a brain, yes, an electronic simulation of a brain, and what it would take in order to achieve such a thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, this would uh, sort of be an electronic version of his universal machine. Now, back when he was thinking about the universal machine, it would have been mostly a mechanical device, not an electronic device. It was yeah. only through the the um, developments of World War II, the, the techno- technological developments of World War II, that electronics started to become more important than mechanical devices. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's when he starts working in computer theory and, and even computer software theory. Uh, and again, this is all theoretical, uh, but he starts to work in, in 47. He starts working on the idea of programming and neural nets. Yes. That's fascinating stuff. Yeah. Um, talking about networks, mm-hmm. essentially, years before we would have computer networks of any size. Right. And he was he was even thinking about creating some sort of mechanical network that would have some sort of learning capability. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that it can carry out instructions, but that it can learn from the instructions you give it and build upon that. Yes. So this is essentially artificial intelligence. This is really where he starts to to become interested in the subject of artificial intelligence. And mm-hmm. Turing, you know, you could call him the father of computer science. You could also call him the father of artificial intelligence in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, one other fascinating thing about him in that era right immediately post-war, um, apparently part of his uh, frustration as, as part of a way to alleviate the frustration he was feeling with uh, getting his work done. Now, he wasn't really recognized for his wartime work because so much of it was top secret. Right. So, you know, as sort of a way to deal with the stress of that, he, he took up running. Ah, uh, yes. And almost qualified for the 1948 uh, uh, British Olympic team as a marathon runner. Yep. And it's just... He's one of those things where I'd always heard about his mathematical work and his work with computers. I'm like, really? He, yeah. You know. He sustained an injury, which unfortunately prevented him from being really considered for that team. But that is pretty remarkable. I mean, the guy was a, an, a phenomenal genius and potentially a world-class athlete. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are stories about touring, uh, having fun by uh, racing people across the campuses of the various universities he worked at while they took public transportation and he would go on foot and beat them there. So, I mean, there was, he, he definitely had a little bit of a playful side to him. Um, so in 1950, Turing proposes something that uh, plays a really important role in artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. It's called the Turing test. Yes. And uh, this was in a paper called Computing Machinery and Intelligence, which appeared in the journal Mind in 1950. Mind. Yes. Nice. And uh, this was this was a really interesting philosophical point. Turing suggested that uh, if you could build a machine that could imitate a thinking living creature um, so that it could fool someone an interrogator, 
uh, 70% of the time that the interrogator was talking to a human and not a machine, uh, it would be said to pass the Turing test. I would said to, it would be said that this was a machine that could at least simulate intelligence. Yes. Um, and uh, Hodges has a, a great section in his website that goes into a discussion about um, Descartes. Ah. Uh, and uh, Descartes actually theorized about something similar to this ages mm-hmm. before Turing. Descartes oh, sure. said that uh, that if we could build a machine that could imitate a living thing, mm-hmm. we would still be able to recognize it as a machine because it would lack understanding. Yes. So even if we could teach a machine to talk, it would just it would say words, but it wouldn't be meaningful. It couldn't respond in a meaningful way, so it could not be uh, able to to demonstrate any sort of understanding of what it was talking about. Mm-hmm. Descartes was actually, in a way, Descartes was really forward thinking in this because he was essentially stating that the problem of teaching a machine to comprehend and respond to stimuli is far more complicated than anyone would imagine. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it turns out that's true. It is really, really hard to teach a machine to uh, to detect, interpret, and respond to stimuli mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, beyond a basic level. Right. Like you could teach a machine, quote-unquote teach a machine, to detect temperature and move away from temperatures that are too hot. Right. But to be able to converse is a much different uh, uh, task. Right. Much much higher level of thinking required in order to accomplish that task. Exactly. And that's that may be why Turing specifically chose conversation as the the task to mm-hmm. test in the Turing test. It makes sense. Uh, some people have objected to that, saying that conversation is not really a test of intelligence. Uh, but Turing had various responses to these objections. Uh, in his paper, he said that, uh, this is a quote. I believe that in about 50 years' time, it will be possible to program computers with a storage capacity of about 10 to the ninth power. 10 to the ninth power of what? I have no idea because he didn't specify in this particular quote. To make them play the imitation game so well that an average interrogator will not have more than 70% chance of making the right identification after five minutes of questioning. So uh, the imitation game is kind of what I was alluding to earlier. Mm-hmm. You have an interrogator who is asking questions of two subjects. One of those two subjects is a computer. Right. The other is a human being. And the interrogator doesn't know right. which is which. Yeah, it has no way of seeing. Like the interrogator it does not have a line of sight to the subjects. The interrogator is essentially asking questions, usually like through a terminal, so you're typing them mm-hmm. in and you're seeing the responses on a screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and after five minutes of questioning, if that interrogator is unable to determine... Uh, which is the human and which is the computer, then that device may very well pass the Turing test. Now, when we say with 70% chance, that means that over multiple tests uh, with multiple interrogators, that that ends up being you know 70% chance or, or better that um, the interrogator is unable to make that determination. That's when you say you've kind of hit this artificial intelligence mm-hmm. level, as defined by Turing. Um now, some people would say that, well, if you just designed a computer that had a, a deep enough vocabulary and a, a basic set of rules that told it how grammar works, mm-hmm. so essentially a, a, a syntax, telling it how syntax works, right. um, it could possibly fool people, but it doesn't mean that it's intelligent. Turing's response is, so what? 
<laughs> to your from your perspective, it seems as if the machine is intelligent. And isn't that all that matters? Right. Because you could argue, well, I can talk to the dumbest person on the planet and they're going to at least be able to understand certain things I say as opposed to this machine that doesn't really understand it. Turing's response to that is, how do you know? The <laughs> only way we know that anything's intelligent is through our own experience. We don't like Chris is looking at me and I'm talking to Chris, but Chris doesn't know if I'm intelligent because Chris only has his own experience. He, he knows that he's intelligent in the sense that, you know, he's able to think and process information I appear to be able to do that, but that could all just be an incredible simulation. There's no way for you to know, correct? Right. Same thing with the machines. Turing's like, hey, we can't really know that anyone else is intelligent. Therefore, it doesn't matter. So same thing should apply to machines. I've... Shut up of your face. <laughs> I have long suspected that Jonathan Strickland is, in fact, a machine. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, let me put it this way. I don't want to be a replicant. I want to be a replicant. <laughs> okay, I like that one. Okay, so uh, this is 1950 when he proposed the Turing test. In 1952, <laughs> we we reach a really unfortunate time during Turing's life. Mm -hmm. The British government arrests him for yes. for being a homosexual. Yes, uh, this is against they, the the UK had very strict laws, conservative laws. Uh, and he, rather than going to prison, he elected to undergo injections. Yes. Which would uh, decrease his libido. Yes, hormone so, injections. Yes. Yeah, so essentially, this is it's chemical castration, is mm -hmm. what the what's technically referred to as. Um, he did that for uh, a, at least a year, um, but part of that sentence also meant that he lost all of his clearance, security clearance that he had as uh, working for various. Um, projects and, and government, uh, uh, well, government projects as well as, right. as his university ones. Mm -hmm. So he lost all of that. He lost his security clearance because um, he could not, as, as a convicted criminal, could not retain it. Right. Um, this possibly led to depression. It's hard to say because he, he wasn't really communicative. But on June 7th, 1954, he took his own life. He um, committed suicide by ingesting cyanide pills. Yes, they uh, they found him. Actually, I believe it was his housekeeper yeah. who found him uh, with an apple, which had been partially eaten. Right. Uh, apparently, the police uh, revealed that they thought it was a suicide. Right. Although the uh, apparently the uh, his mother believed that he might have been doing a science experiment with cyanide and had some on his hands and may have accidentally ingested. The poison. Right. And I actually saw somebody, it may have even been in the Hodges reference, where he, he said he may have planned it specifically that way, specifically to convince his mother that it was an accident. Yeah, to make her feel better about it right. so that she wouldn't be heartbroken that her son committed suicide. Right. Um, right. So when we say committed suicide, that's the generally held belief right. that was established by the police. Um, there are, I there is the, the possible... Uh, there's the possibility that it was an accident, mm -hmm. um, although I can I think that's probably uh, not likely. That's true. That's but true. Um, on September 10th, 2009, mm -hmm. the British government, um, the prime minister, Gordon Brown, uh, issued a formal apology mm -hmm. to Turing 
for the way that uh, the country treated him, considering that he was a war hero, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And his contributions to computer science were phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Um, And they said that, you know, treating any human being that way was reprehensible Mm -hmm. and that it was inexcusable and that they offered a very profound apology, not just to Turing, but to everyone who had to undergo this kind of oppression uh, during that period of British history. Mm -hmm. And that that was just not it was it was inhumane is what he was essentially saying. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that specifically to Turing, someone who gave such huge contributions to the United Kingdom and the world. Yes, uh, it was particularly tragic. Yes, he certainly helped win the war for the Allies, or at least shorten it considerably. Right, he saved countless lives. Uh, yeah. you know, on on the Allied side, so it, he really was, in every sense of the word, a hero. Um, so it was. You could say the cynical thing about well, this apology comes you know, fifty years too late, but. Uh, Another way of looking at it is that it was it was a way of it was a way of admitting that these policies were were wrong, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I think that was it was an important step, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, to maybe change the mood a little bit sure. since it's, we're ending on a, a sort of a down note. Yeah. Um, and when I say sort of, I don't mean sort of. Yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, I had never heard before: some people feel that there may be an homage to Turing in one of today's tech companies. Oh, yeah? That being the logo of Apple Computer. Really? The Apple with the bite taken out of it. Oh, interesting. However, the original logo for the company, um, which is funny, if you've ever seen it and you see today's logo, they're completely different. The the original logo looks like a woodcut of Isaac Newton sitting under a tr- the tree, you mm. know, for the apocryphal story of the apple clonking him on the head and going, hey, there's gravity. Uh, <laughs> the apple did not actually say that. No, it did not. Neither did he. But it is an appealing story. Oh, now that we've gotten to the core of that, um, it, it apparently is not true. They were already using the name Apple, and uh, um, the uh, different colors on the Apple logo um, do not represent... Uh, Turing's homosexuality. Um, in fact, they may—they probably had everything to do with uh, Steve Jobs wanting to promote the multicolor uh, Apple II um, abilities, and so they added the colors to the logo uh, for that reason. But uh, it is kind of an interesting. I mean, when you see it, you go, "Oh, well, you know, that very well could be." Uh, I don't know that Apple has ever issued a formal. Um, statement regarding that connection but uh, most people that i read on that subject say you know well if newton was the very first reference and they had already been calling themselves apple it's probably not an homage to turing but uh, he certainly did make uh, significant contributions to uh, to computer science and i was even reading in that um the uh, about the new jane smiley book about you remember when we talked about the very very first computer yes um you know, Turing was working in uh, the same time as the Soviet uh, scientists and the uh, the folks at Iowa State back in the day, mm-hmm. and they were all sort of working on different methods of getting um, making mechanical and uh, electronic calculations in different ways. Um, but it's it's fascinating that you know these pioneers were completely on their own, working independently from one another, and uh, all making these significant contributions. It's it's 
kind of a shame, though, that Turing's contributions were known so much later because they were classified. And so people really didn't realize what an important person he was in the field of computer science until so much later. Yeah, a, a lot of his contributions, even the ones that weren't classified, um, ended up being like he, he would get beaten to the punch by someone else. But it, mm -hmm. it tended to be people that he worked with. Yeah. Uh, that and and they were building on his work, and he was building on theirs. Mm -hmm. uh, from from Hodge's book, I got the. I mean, I don't know how accurate the the sentiment is. Yes. My own my own interpretation was that uh, Turing wasn't really he wasn't obsessed with credit. He wasn't really that wasn't important to him. What was important to him was making these connections. Uh, we didn't mention this, but and toward the end of his life, he the. the Turing had this thing throughout his life where he would switch gears and suddenly be mm -hmm. really interested in, a, in a, a seemingly unrelated field of study and yet find ways to connect it to things that he was already pretty well schooled in. Yeah, as a matter like, of fact, uh, I'm sorry, at the, at the time he died, he was involved in uh, biology and physics experiments, which yeah. makes all the world of sense. You might say cyanide. Why would he have cyanide on his hands? He's a you know, mathematician. He's a computer scientist. Now, he was actually interested in all kinds of science. Right. So by the end of his life, he was looking at biology and, and nonlinear uh, uh, mathematics that mm -hmm. apply to biology. So he, he, like I said, he was a really remarkable guy. He found connections between things that most of us we look at and we just think of as being completely compartmentalized different subjects, right? Like there's yeah. a hard line between this subject and that subject. And Turing was saying, no, no, they're all the same thing. You just don't see the numbers like I do. And I'm thinking, wow, this guy. And, you know, he was reportedly shy and awkward, not a very yeah. good conversationalist. Um, I think I, I read somewhere that his speech was halting. Yeah, he, he sounds like he's kind of like one of those guys who was just perfectly happy to have his close set of friends and to be able to work on these, these complicated problems. And mm -hmm. that was, that was really all he needed. Um, and you know, he, and the fact that he was constantly learning was pretty inspirational too. So, uh, I guess that wraps up this discussion about Alan Turing. Um, like I say, he's a very interesting person. You can find plenty of information on the web about him. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you could also pick up that book, the, uh, uh, the, uh, Alan Turing, the Enigma. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a it's a good book, and the Stanford Encyclopedia has an exhaustive and exhausting <laughs> entry just on the Turing test alone. There's also an entry about Alan Turing himself. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny because you'd think in a, a philosophy um, material that he wouldn't, but really, when you get down to it, the, the Turing test is it's part computer science, part philosophy. Yeah, artificial intelligence definitely has a lot of philosophy to it. So, I should also point out that Turing was not really concerned with. Uh, machines gaining any sort of um, self-awareness or yeah. consciousness. He was talking about intelligence and consciousness as two separate things, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which, uh, uh, as we've discussed before, you know, that's that's an important thing to to distinguish intelligence and consciousness. Because, yes. you know, I'm often conscious, rarely intelligent. <laughs> All right. So if you guys have any comments, questions, any suggestions for future topics, especially uh, you do. I think we should do one on Bletchley Park. Oh, okay. Yeah, Bletchley Park. Yeah, uh, let us know if you think that that would work. If you if you'd like to hear more on on that, because the Codebreakers of World War Two. That's yeah, that's always fascinating. We could to me. go into the Navajo uh, oh, yeah. codes and things of that nature. I, one of my first uh, big articles was about code breaking. Mm -hmm. 
big articles here at HowStuffWorks.com. That is. Well, if you if you have any suggestions, you can let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is TechStuffHSW, or you can email us. Our address is TechStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks.com iPhone app is coming soon. Get access to our content in a new way. Articles, videos, and more all on the go. Check out the latest podcasts and blog posts and see what we're saying on Facebook and Twitter. Coming soon to iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?